Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me tonight is co-host Natan Elaine Kemp. Hi, Natan. Hi, Bernice. It's great to be back. Well, great to have you. Well, I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. And a special thanks to the Blog Talk Radio team for featuring this show on their homepage all day today. Now, if you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And following the show, you can continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and or on my Facebook page, Research at the National Archives and Beyond. As a matter of fact, please like my page. Well, tonight is going to be a very interesting and intriguing adventure. Have you ever traced your family through a maze of intriguing documents and discovered politicians, landowners, socialites, and key decision makers in the community? What about family members who are both free people of color and white? Well, in keeping with the vision of researching and sharing hidden information and stories about the communities of South Louisiana and the golf course, family historian Gwen Olson offers stories of the people and places outside of New Orleans. Her discussion of the Carr-Kelso family is an effort to provide stories, and pictures that can possibly offer new information for those researching their histories. So I am really happy to welcome family historian and genealogist Gwendolyn Smith. Now, you all may have recalled that Gwendolyn has been on the show two other times. The first show, she focused on her research on finding a family on a large plantation. The second was tracing a family from a small form, and this one is of the challenges of finding free families. So I'd like to welcome Gwendolyn to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Gwen. Thank you for having me. Well, Gwen, 
I know that this is going to be one interesting story, and I need you to help set the stage for this story by telling us who are the main characters. Just just lay it out for us so that we know who you're talking about. Okay, so first of all, I want to talk about the George Young Kelsos. They figure in this story, and I'm going to talk about five different George Young Kelsos. Um, the name has been passed on through the generations in the family. The first George Young Kelso was born in 1765 in Clones, Ireland, and he was actually the founder of the family fortune. And he came over to America in the 1780s to Baltimore, Maryland. The second George Young Kelso was born in 1795. He is the son of George's brother, John Kelso. And he okay. was born in 1795 in Baltimore, and he died in Alexandria, and he is my third great-grandfather. The third okay. George Young Kelso was born in 1842. He is the son of the second George Young Kelso. He was born in Alexandria, and he is my second great-uncle. He is the black son of George Young Kelso. The fourth one is George Young Kelso that was born in 1853 in Alexandria, he is the son of the second George Young Kelso's son, John, his white son. The fourth one is white. The fifth George Young Kelso is George Young Kelso Graham that we call um, Uncle Kelso. I never met him. He actually died before I was born. And he is my um, second, wait, second great-granduncle. I'm sorry, the other George Young Kelso is my third great-granduncle. And he is the grandson of the George Young Kelso born in Baltimore and died in Alexandria. When I look at trees with these five George Young Kelsos on it, they are all mixed up, you know, because um, their birth dates are similar. They always sign their name as George Young Kelso, and it's actually caused legal problems with the family. Who um, And the white family and the black family refuse to acknowledge that they're related. There are also um, the John Kelso, who is the brother of the first George Young Kelso, who was born in 1766, who is my fourth great-grandfather, and he came from Clones, Ireland in 1891 with another, uh, with his younger brother, Thomas. He brought his younger brother, Thomas, who was like eight or nine years old, um, to Baltimore after their father's death to join up with George Young Kelso, who was a schoolteacher in Baltimore. And they started a butchery business in the 1700s and became fabulously wealthy at the time. So he had a son named John Kelso, who was born in 1831, who was his only white son. And he's the father of the white George Young Kelso. And there's another John P. Kelso, who is the black son of uh, George Young Kelso. So you have two half-brothers, named, both named John Kelso. Um, the black one always went by John P. Kelso, and he was born in 1842. The white John Kelso's son was born in 1831. And the oh, black one was born in Alexandria. Right, yeah, it was a mess. So, and like I said, tracing this family got to be very complicated. Okay, I hope that people were able to follow you. And uh, just know I that there are a lot of Johns you. and a lot of Georges. Right, a there are a lot, lot of Johns and a lot of Georges. Okay, and for those of you who are in the chat, I've already messed up with George number one. So let me explain to you all that George number one was born in eighteen excuse me, seventeen sixty five. And as right. you can see I typed 
1965. So let's go right straight. Number one, George, 1765. Number two, George, 1795 is your great, great-grandfather. Three times great-grandfather. Great your three times grandfather. George Young Kelso, number three. Is my, he is, um, he is the son of the second George Young Kelso. Okay, and he's you're black. He's black, or he's black, or as they described him, you think he was white, but he's really black. Okay, that was his description. Okay, and he went back and forth across the color line and ended up um, spending the latter half of his white his life as white. Okay, and then we have number four. Who From was 1853 to 1914. Who is actually the nephew of number three, and he is white. He is the son of George number two's white son, John, His own, the only son that he ever had, the only white okay. son he ever had. Okay, and then we have, okay, we're number four, then we are number five. Um, that George Young Kelso is the... Um, is the brother of my great grandfather, and I actually think he might be my other great grandfather. <laughs> okay. Ooh, family intrigue. So, but yes, he is the he's the brother of my great grandfather. Um, that George Young Kelso. Okay, so, and then we have the two half brothers. Right, John Kelso, eighteen thirty one, and John P, eighteen forty two. Right, and I forgot to tell you about. Um, the, the other John Kelso, who is the father of John, George Young Kelso the first. Okay. So there are three, and there are at least there are at least two other John Kelsos that I left off because they're not figuring in the story. Okay, so Chatters, I hope you you understand where we're going now. So, how did you start researching the Kelso family? Okay, so you know, growing up, I knew my mother's name. My mother's mother's name was Lizzie. I'm named after her. That's my middle name, Elizabeth. And my mother's mother died of tuberculosis when she was five. And the man whose name she carries, who's supposed to be her father, died two years earlier. But I was told in 1986 that that was not her father by one of my uncles, which kind of uh, floored me. And I didn't even think to ask the question, so who is her father? Uh So um, my mother was raised by her aunts and then raised by her sister who moved out here to California when she was eight. Um, she was raised by, she and her siblings were raised by other family members, um, apparently when Lizzie became too ill to care for them. And my mother, one of her um, mem- most bitter memories of her childhood is that she went to church on Mother's Day and wore a red rose because she thought her mother was still alive and her mother died the February before and they hadn't told her. So my mother um, was very bitter about her family, about her Kelso family, because um, I'm sorry, her Graham family, because um, you know she was shuttled around through the Fords, who didn't want her and didn't like her because they knew that she wasn't a Ford, and the Grahams, as far as she was concerned, abandoned her. Um, a story that I heard was that the Grahams tried to take her in because they wanted to raise her as white, and the Fords refused to allow her, them to do that. So they shuttled her around and placed her out of their reach until she was um, she came to California where she was raised by her family, um, mm-hmm. her sister here. So in the late 19 well in, in the late 1970s, I can recall my mom 
telling me, you know, the son of a bitch is finally, excuse me, is finally dead. And I was asking her, well, who? And mm-hmm. she said, my grandfather. And I was told that her grandfather lived in San Rafael, California, and I don't know if you know anything about California, but it was in the 70s and 60s a very white enclave that you could not get into if you were black. And talking to my uncles, they'd seen him frequently around town, but they just didn't acknowledge their relationship, you know, one being black and one being white. And Mm -hmm. as far as I know, Lizzie was disowned by her family, my understanding, because she did marry a black man. Um, And everyone else, you know, sort of jumped, everyone else jumped the fence. And so um, in also in the 1970s, a man called me. Um, I guess he found my number. I think that the family was kind of tracking us. Mm-hmm. So he found my number in the phone book and called, and a friend answered, and he said that his name was Jerry Graham, and he was related to me, and he'd like to contact me, and this was his phone number. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited. I went to my mom. I said, Mom, one of your relatives called me, and he wants me to call him. And my mother said, if you call him, I'll disown you. So I didn't wow. call Mm-hmm. And, you know, you obey your mom. I wish I had and just kind of kept it a secret, but, you know, you obey your mom. And sure. that's what I did. So, you know, that um, you know that piece of information was dropped. Yeah. So my mom never even saw a picture of her mother. And the picture that you have of the young woman on the swing is my grandmother, my mother's mother. And she never even saw that picture until about two years before her death. And, and that was Lizzie? the first that's Lizzie, and that's the first okay. picture she'd ever seen of her mother. Okay. And she cried when she saw that. Um, yeah. And her oldest brother verified that was their mother. He he remembered when he died. He was a lot older than she was. My mother was the youngest in her family. Mm-hmm. And so after my mom died, she refused to allow me to do any research on her family um, because she just she was angry with them. Um, an uncle gave me some information, so. I said, and matter of fact, it was at her funeral. They gave he gave me a packet of information, and so I started to do some research. So, yeah. So according to my mom's birth certificate and her sister Velma's birth certificate, um, my grandmother Lizzie was born in Alexandria sometime around 1896. I've mm-hmm. never been able to find her as a child. I've hired people to look for her. They've never been able to find her as a child. And it's only been recently that I've been able to ascertain that she was actually born in Alexandria because one of my uncles thought she was born in Montana, which is where the family left after 1900 um, mm-hmm. to go live, and they still live up there. And on my aunt's um, birth certificate, she's listed as a school teacher, mm-hmm. And um, she was also listed my Aunts told me at some point she was a nurse, and then in her obituary it lists her as being a maid. So, you know, she I guess she did what she had to do to, to survive. Wow. Um, well, let me, just, let me just stop you for a minute because okay. you said something, and, I, and for those uh, in the chat, just help them understand what you meant when you said some of them jumped over the fence. Oh, they they – um, they decided in in 1900, you know, the laws really became very harsh in Louisiana against blacks, and so they could, so they did. They moved to Montana, far away from Louisiana, where nobody would know them, and lived as white, which is called hopping the fence, where mm-hmm. you kind of turn your back on your family, your black family, and you leave. Mm-hmm. The thing with them is almost all of them hopped the fence. Uh, the only one, there are only a few family members that I know, one of the Johns, 
and another brother by the name of William that stayed behind as black. But for the most part, en masse, they all uh, moved someplace or the other and just lived the rest of their lives as white right. and just melded into the white community. So so basically, as you said, your mother had never seen a picture of her mother. Yes, and she didn't even until remember right her. before she passed away. Yes. Okay, but you always knew that her name was Lizzie? Yes, I always knew her name was Lizzie Graham, yes, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as I was named after her, and they told me I was named after my grandmother, Lizzie Graham Ford. So I knew her maiden name, and, you know, I knew her name. So now tell us a little about your, your grandmother, and also when you're telling us about your grandmother, give us an idea of what kind of searching you had to go through and what documents were you able to find on your grandmother, Liz, Lizzie. Well, with Lizzie, I actually could find, she's the one, she's the enigma, I could really find the least about her. I found her wedding date, the, you know, when she married her husband, uh, whose name was Lawrence Ford, in 1918. And actually the 1920 census is the first one I find her in. She's in the 1920 census. She's in the 1930 census. But then, of course, she died in 1939, so she doesn't appear anymore. And okay, and where is she? Where is she in she the is uh, in 1920? Monroe, in the 1920 census, she was in Monroe, Louisiana. And I have no idea how she got to Monroe, Louisiana. I was hoping to make a trip to Louisiana um, last year, but, you know, finances kind of get in the way. But Mm -hmm. And I have a feeling that's the only reason I may be able to answer some of those questions. But Mm -hmm. I do know that um, Kelso, Uncle George Young Kelso Graham, who is the gentleman um, in the flyer, moved to Monroe in 1900, around 1900, to work as a uh, cotton grader. Mm-hmm. And so they were, um, Lizzie and uh, Uncle Kelso were very close. So I know that they visited uh, each other frequently, and, you know, they I know that they were very close, according to my family. Well, let me understand, what is the relationship between your Uncle George, young Kelso, to Lizzie? George, young Kelso Graham, is Lizzie's uncle. Okay. He is her father's brother. Gotcha. Okay. Okay, so continue to tell us about uh, Lizzie and and Lawrence uh, Ford. So, you know, according to my Uncle Lawrence, they just had a very stormy relationship. He was an alcoholic, and so, you know, I guess at some point she was her mother. I had never been able to find her mother outside of the 1880 census, um, but... You know, I found I got her death certificate, and it lists her mother as Martha Maples, which verified what my um, what my paper that my uncle gave me said, and it said that her father's name was Edward Connor Graham, and who was actually named after a Revolutionary War hero who was her, his great grandfather. So Edward Connor Graham uh, was born in 1874. Yeah, he was born in 1874. And I can't find a marriage certificate uh, uh, between Martha and Edward. And so Martha drops off because the only place I can find her is in the 1880 census. Okay, now I need to know who is Martha. Martha's Lizzie's mother. Yeah, Martha Maples is Lizzie's mother. Okay. 
and Edward Connor Graham is her father and the brother of George Young Kelso Graham. Okay. So going back, you know, I was able to, when I went to Edward Connor Graham and started looking for things on him, you know, immediately I found, you know, in the census a lot on him. You know, I found his mother's name. His mother was uh, Clara Eugenia um, Kelso. And I found all of his brothers and sisters. He had eight brothers and sisters and a half-brother. And the third picture you have on your uh, wall are of Edward's four sisters. And don't ask me who is who. I have no idea. And the two of the two older women, one is Rebecca, and we haven't gotten to her, and the other one is Clara, his mother, who would be my second great-grandmother. Oh, okay, and, okay, beautiful and I, picture. And the picture, as far as I can date, according to their style, was taken around 1900. And okay. I need to take it to a historian so that they could probably give me a better idea, according to the styles of the two older women, who was likely to be the mother and who was likely to be the daughter. They uh-huh. worked as dressmakers. So it's likely they made their the dresses that they're wearing in this picture. And was that a picture taken in Louisiana? That would have been, had to have been taken in Louisiana. Okay. Um, just based on the time frame, because they hadn't, they didn't move out of Louisiana until after 1900. And this okay. was taken either in the late 1890s or right around 1900. Okay. And were they, or did they consider themselves uh, black or white? Well, in Louisiana, at the time this was taken, they were listed as black. And, okay. you know, I tell people looking up their family members, don't get hung up on mulatto, whether they're listed as mulatto or black or whatever, because you can look at them, and if you enlarge it, they look like six white women, at mm-hmm. least to me. Mm-hmm. They're listed in the census as black. You know, occasionally they're listed as mulatto, but they were, you know, most of the census they were listed as black. Mm-hmm. So you can't really get hung up on the labels that are put on them by the census taker. Yes. So, and this picture came to me through a cousin, and I have no idea how she got it, and she didn't tell me. Okay. And if you saw a picture of my mother, my mother, you could stick my mother in that picture, and she would fit right in. She looks just like them, these women Mm -hmm. here. Yes, we have a, a comment coming out of the chat, great photo. So tell us about Lizzie's father. Lizzie's father, Edward Connor Graham, um, he, after Lizzie was born, he moved with his family to Montana and then and worked in various, um, he worked as a um, um, farmer, he worked with horses, and he eventually worked for the Anaconda Copper Mine. And then when he retired, he's the one that moved to San Rafael, California. Okay. And and you know I guess kept track of his children without really acknowledging them because there is no other reason for him to come to San Rafael, California, and we, as far as I know, are his only descendants. He never married. He, mm-hmm. according to his death certificate, he was single. According to all the census papers, he's always been single. Okay. And then then getting back to his parents. So then we have uh, his parents who were Clara. Kelso, and 
Daniel uh, Daniel Graham. And Daniel Graham was born in South Carolina to a really old colonial, um, well, very wealthy um, family in South Carolina. Um, very old, very wealthy, and he moved to uh, um, he moved to Alexandria in the 1840s. Um, and he lived in the 1850 census. He's living near um, near Clara as a young girl, and he mar- he had one first marriage, and no one can find a marriage certificate. But they had two children together, and he married Clara soon after that, or actually married in air quotes because, of course. The fact that she was black and he was white, they weren't allowed to marry. Right, right. And they had eight children together. And he died in 1879 of kidney failure. And this was in Louisiana? In Louisiana. He died in Alexandria, Louisiana. Yes. Okay. So where's the family now? Help us understand where we're going now. Okay, so the family is still in Alexandria, in 1880, and um, they're living in, by 1880, they're living in a house that was owned by Clara's mother, um, whose name is Rebecca Carr, Rebecca Mm -hmm. Carr Kelso. She called herself Kelso. Mm -hmm. And this is a house on um, 2nd Street between Xavier and Bellier. I don't know how to pronounce that in French. Um, Jari, Jari would probably strangle me. It's it was called it was between Bellier and Xavier Street. And the way Xavier. I know this yeah, the way I know this is because um in newspaper articles they are listing another property for sale and it says that it's next to the Rebecca Carr house because of, the, of course the white people aren't going to call her Rebecca Kelso that is located on second street between Xavier and Bellier. And what newspaper so, are you looking at? I was looking at the Louisiana Democrat. Okay. And and what what was and the time period? I, and this was in 1885, 1886. It was a, it, there was a serial listing. Okay. And I did it actually by googling Rebecca Carr, see what came up and I'm going, "Oh, now I know where she lives." And looking on the census, it does say that she's living on 2nd Street. And mm-hmm. in 1880, it does show Clara and her family ranging from ages 3 to 18 as a widow, living on 2nd Street. Mm-hmm. And by looking at the newspaper, excuse me, it told me exactly where the house is between, you know, Xavier and Bellier Streets. Mm-hmm. Okay. There, there's a question in the chat. Gwendolyn, it says, were the cars from Virginia before Louisiana? There were some cars from Virginia. There, this is, we're going to get, there's a huge clan of cars that we haven't even touched. But yes, they are. There are some from. They are from Virginia, and Kentucky. And the thing is, is that the cars were came from Virginia and Kentucky before they. Uh, well, not before they split up. Their parents. They said that their parents were born in either Virginia and Kentucky, and they were the families. Their parents were born before Kentucky became a separate state. So the ones that say that they were born in Virginia, I'm not quite sure whether they were actually born in Virginia or born in Kentucky, or if they were born in the uh, territory that was both, you know, Virginia and Kentucky before they split up. Mm-hmm. So, well, cause it, yeah. Oh, Go because uh, Kentucky didn't split off as a separate state until 1796. Mm-hmm. So now, yeah. So 
let's say that they did come from Virginia or Kentucky. Now, I understand, however, you did run into some roadblocks, though. Now, how did I you did. overcome? How did you overcome them, and what did you find regarding well, the, the Kelsos and the cars? Well, the roadblock I ran into was in 1870. You know, Rebecca's listing herself as Rebecca Kelso, and at this point, I didn't know that they were a free family of color. I thought that they were slaves because my other two branches were slaves. But you know, I always look at the 1860 just in case something shows up. So I look at the 1860 census, and, of course, they don't show up. So, um, But looking through it, I did see a Rebecca Carr who has children, uh, has a daughter named Clara Carr. And I was going, hmm, I wonder if this is the same, you know, this is the same person. And, mm-hmm. um, no, actually, I take that back. When I looked in 1870, I found Clara was living with her, um, still was living with Daniel Graham. And I found Rebecca, first I found Rebecca um, Rebecca Graham with her husband Daniel Graham and the children. And then um, in 18, wait, wait, I'm in 1870, that was in 1870, they were there. 1860, yes, I found Rebecca, who was listed as Carr, with her Carr children. And I recognized that, you know, the Clara and um, John and George Carr and Rebecca Carr are the same people that I had been researching before. And I was going, oh, no wonder everybody's run into this roadblock because there's a completely different name. And so, you know, talking to cousin, other cousins who've researched, they've gotten to 1870 and they haven't been able to get any further because they weren't aware of the name change. Okay. And okay. So, yeah, so I found them as cars. And the, and the way I found them is because of the family grouping. You know, I was looking for family for family grouping, and there was no reason, no other reason for somebody to have these children with exactly the same name, unless they were related. Mm-hmm. And I found her in the home of another Carr named Hester Carr, who I think was Rebecca's sister, who was also born in um, Kentucky, and she was a few years younger than Hester, and she was living in the home of her husband. Uh, who was a Florida Frenchman by the name of Joseph Lorsey. Mm-hmm. And so they're all living there. And not only are they living there, there's a whole bunch of cars living together. And most of them are born, and the older ones are either born in Kentucky, there are some born in Maryland, and there are some born in uh, Virginia. And so I was trying to figure out what is the relationship between all of these. Now, going back to 1850, I find I continue to find cars, and I actually find some more that had dropped off in the 1860 census. So Rebecca's free, still free in 1850. Um, mm-hmm. When I went searching through, I couldn't find any of them on the ship manifestos. Um, none of the cars on the ship manifestos. I can't find. I can't. I have no idea how they got from Kentucky to um, to uh, um, Alexandria. Mm-hmm. I did find one woman who had been living with them by the name of Fanny Blue as a slave um, who came from Maryland to um, Louisiana in 1843 who is now living with the Carr family. So I don't know. She lived with them for the rest of her life with this Carr clan, so I have no idea what the relationship was. But she was also born in, I think she was born in either Virginia, Kentucky, or um 
um, Maryland, and they were all born either in Kentucky, Virginia, or Maryland. And first I thought that they belonged to the free car family of Maryland, but mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure. And another route I have to check to see if they belong to the cars, the Kentucky cars who are related to Thomas Jefferson. They, All the ones born in Kentucky say that they're, Parents were born in Kentucky, and this would um, these people were born. Rebecca was born in 1818. Some of the other ones were born in the 1790s or 1800, which would mean that their parents were some of the earliest settlers of the Kentucky Territory because it was first settled in the 1770s. Mm-hmm. And I have scoured Kentucky, the census, and any other records I could find online because I haven't visited Kentucky. And I can't figure out exactly where they came from. And going back to the 1840 census, I can only find one car, who is George Carr, um, listed in the census. And I have no idea where the other ones came from. And George Carr is also listed. He's He was born in 1796 in Kentucky. He's also listed in the 1830 census, and he's the only part of the black clan that is listed in 1830 and 1840. One of my cousins said that she thought that Rebecca was George's slave at some point, but I can't find any evidence of that either. Um, and she said that she would get back to me and, and show me the, whatever paper she found, but she hasn't had a chance to get back to me on that. Right. Uh, well, I tell you, one of the things that we're going to do just to help people kind of understand everything that you've just said is we're going to take a break come back and continue the story and continue to pull all these different pieces together and make sense out of the cards and the Kelsos and and the it's it's just an interesting story. So okay. we'll take a break and come right back. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and joining me tonight is Natan Elaine Kemp. Well, you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. 
Now, you have been listening to Gwendolyn Olson, and I'm telling you, she has been giving us names and connections and trying to help us understand the entire story of the Kelso and Carr family. Now, she named for us five George Young Kelsos. Now, can you imagine putting together all of these different names with the first one being born in 1765, the second, 1795, the third, 1842, the fourth, 1853, and the fifth, 1866. And then she told us there are two more young John Kelsos, and then took us to John Kelso and John P. Kelso. Now, I, I, I don't know about you, but this is a whole lot of information. But we're going to make sense out of it because we're going to find out more about who is John Young Kelso. Now, keep in mind that this is a story that began when Gwendolyn was trying to do research on her mother, and she started uncovering all of these connections. They're black and they're white. So let's continue this discussion with Gwendolyn. You're on, Gwendolyn. (laughs) Okay, so to recap, in 1850, I find Rebecca living with her, her children, Clara, John, and George, and another child, Georgiana, um, who died of scarlet fever by 1860. And I found her in the mortality record, so I found that. And then gathered among them, there are like 20 cars, and they're all living in a group next to each other. I mean, one clump, you turn the page, they're all cars. And that's the way they were living in 1850 and 1860. So, like I said, I can't find them in 1840, and I can't find them in 1830, and so what I did is I was trying to figure out, okay, so I found all these people, and where's the father? And at this point, I had no idea that their father was white. And so um, I did some other research, and I actually found Clara um, in Montana, and I, I um, was able to order her death certificate online. So I ordered her death certificate um, from Montana. She died in 1907. And the death certificate said, George Wyselsa of Baltimore, and it was spelled W-Y-C-E-L-L-S-A. So I was thinking, oh, I've got some Polish ancestry. So I went looking around to see if there was some Wyselsa in Baltimore. Could not find it, could not find that name anywhere, couldn't find anything. So then um, I said, okay, well, let me look and see if I can find another um, death certificate. So I found a uh, a death certificate for her brother, John P. Kelso. And it lists his father as George Y. Kelso, and I figured, oh, if you were from Louisiana and you were in Montana and you were saying George Y. Kelso, it's going to sound like George Y. Selsa. Because, okay, like so, I said, tell so what you're saying. Why? How he are you always, telling it? He no, he always George Y. Kelso always went by George Y. Kelso. You always saw George Y. or George Young Kelso on all of these Georges. So if you were, they moved from Louisiana to Montana, and I think if, if the daughter is telling the um, the person writing out the death certificate that his name was George Wyselso, I think that they're going to hear Wyselso. Okay. So that's where, and I wasted a lot of time looking for this <laughs> mysterious Wyselso, some Polish guy named Wyselso that didn't exist. And so when I got John's, um, death certificate. It listed his name as George Y. Kelso, and I'm like, 
okay, that's who it is. So, and also at this point, I, you know, going down, I saw, you know, that George Young Kelso was also being listed as George Young Kelso. And so I started doing some research on George Young Kelso. And George Young Kelso came to Louisiana in the 1820s. He's listed on the 1820 census. And his first child was born there um, in in Louisiana. His first white child was born there. And he married, um, his first wife was a Boston socialite by the name of Ellen Rich. Um, and they married in 1821. And apparently she didn't like Louisiana um, because she stayed in, for the rest of her marriage, she stayed in, in Baltimore. And they had three other children, um, one son, John, the first John Kelso, or should I say the second John Kelso, and uh, two other daughters. And she died right after the fourth child, whose name was Ellen, after her, in 1833. And during this time, George was going back and forth between uh, Louisiana and Baltimore, and he was buying up lots of property. He had inherited lots of money from his uncle, George Young Kelso, who died in 1807 after, you know, making a ton of money in as a butcher. And so I found that George transported over 100 slaves from Maryland via the ships and none of them cars. <laughs> but, you know, he transported uh, a lot of slaves to work on his plantations, and most of them were sugar and cotton um, plantations. And he owned uh, large tracts of land in the Lake Charles district of St. Landry Parish. Um, he purchased uh, 640 acres in 1836 and in an area that would be, what, Calcasu Parish? I don't know how to pronounce that. And by the 1840 census, he has over 200 you know, humans in bondage, which just horrifies me. And then between 1835 and 1881, um, it wasn't 1881, I think it was but um, anyway, it was known it was known um, informally as the Brickyard. Oh, so, Bayou Rapids. Yeah, Bayou Rapids. I'm sorry. Uh -huh. And and the area, the home that Rebecca Carr owned was right on the edge of where this um, his plantation was. His plant they his plantation is listed as being on Lee Street on what is Lee Street in Alexandria. So he apparently gave her a home. She didn't own a lot of land. It was just, you know, it was just a, a small tract home um, on Lee Street. So that uh, apparently came from uh, came from uh, George Young Kelso. And together, you know, they had the five children. And you know, the five children that they had. Clara, my great great grandmother, was the oldest child. And then um, they had another child named William that I found, oh, gosh, I guess about three months ago um, when I was doing some research and found a war claim made by one of the car, um, one of the car clan against um, Nathaniel Banks, um, who invaded the Red River, you know, trying, during the Civil War, um, trying to fight back the Confederacy, and then he ended up retreating. But he destroyed a lot of my family's lands. 
And so they have, um, I found the property claim, and it had all of these signatures on there, and including my great-great-grandfather, Daniel, uh, Daniel Graham, which was just amazing to see his signature. Was and this a Southern Claims Commission claim? It was a Southern, yes. It was a okay. Southern Claim Commission claim. Okay. And it also had, you know, George Young Kelso, John T. Kelso, and then a William Kelso. I'm going, oh, I never heard of him before. Who is he? So I could never find William Kelso outside of the Claim Commission or the 1880 census. I went up and started looking for him, and I ended up locating some cousins through there, and they were having the same problem. They couldn't find him um, before the 1880 census, and he actually died you know, in 1882. And the only thing I can come up with is that being that he was the next, the only other son at that time that George Young Kelso had besides his white son, that he must have taken him somewhere. John also attended Princeton and um, another college uh, university in Pennsylvania. He may have had William with him. I don't know, but he is sort of out of the picture. He wasn't raised by um, Rebecca. Okay. And so he ended up, and the other thing, he was the one that moved to Pineville, and he and his family lived in Pineville in 1880, and they stayed in, you know, they stayed in Pineville. So um, people may not know, where is Pineville in relationship Pine, to Alexandria? Pineville is right outside. It's the next town over from Alexandria. Okay. And so I don't know, you know, I was trying to figure out where George would have met Rebecca. I can't find her as his slave. He may, she may have been his slave. I haven't found it yet. Um, and I don't know when he met her, but it was apparently after the death of his first wife because the first child, Clara, was born in 1836, and Ellen died in 1833. And so, you know, I, I just don't have any idea where where they met. Um so the youngest child that they had was another George Young Kelso. George, they didn't call himself Junior. He's George Young Kelso, born in 1842. And like I said, his half brother also had a son named George Young Kelso, which in 1853 they were, they were ten years apart. So I was always finding them on each other's trees, and I had approached a couple of people to tell them that they had the wrong one on their tree, and they I was never received very well, you know, by these people. And as a matter of fact. I was on a board, and someone was asking about the black George Young Kelso. And this woman said, well, my husband's family, Captain, and the white John Kelso was was always called Captain Judge John Kelso, didn't have any colored family. And I don't know who he is, and I'm just mocking, I mean, sort of doing a southern accent. Um, And I don't know who he is, and it's just weird that they have the same name. And I was trying to research some stuff on John Young Kelso, and I saw it, and I said, as a matter of fact, he is the half-brother of your Captain Judge John Kelso, and this is why. And so she argued with me, so I said, well, let me find out where John Kelso came from. So I had never gone back further than the George Young Kelso, my third great-grandfather. So by looking back, I actually found his father, John Kelso, and found that they had this Huge, these huge mansions in Baltimore. They'd made a fabulous, become fabulously wealthy being butchers. And a matter of fact, his brother Thomas Kelso had a steamship named after him, the Thomas Kelso. And they were influential in Baltimore society. Um, 
so anyway, I found that, and I told her about that, and then she didn't really have any kind of uh, remark about that. So the other thing was is that both George Young Kelsos, the white one and the black one, married women named Mary. And that caused a problem with a lawsuit. And as a matter of fact, I found it as an example of, like, lawsuits that are, are taught in law school. So yeah. you have these two George Young Kelsos uh, family descendants claiming one plot of land. And the white George Young Kelso family said that their father said that this was their land and they had tried to buy to um they tried to pay taxes on it but they were told that somebody else was paying taxes on it. The black George Young Kelso family said that this is our land and um you know it was my George Young Kelso uh, that did it and on all it says on the deed is George Young Kelso and Mary and both of them had wives named Mary. The thing that won it for the black family is that they she had listed their mother had listed it in their, her secession papers that she was willing this land to her family and they didn't have that paper because initially the judge awarded the land to the white family the black family appealed and on appeal they said oh no the black family has the better claim but of course both of the families are now white so it was one white family after the other and the judge said are you guys related and they said no so but they were and, related. Oh yeah, they were re- they were, <laughs> they, were they, related. they were related. Uncle and nephew, they were related. And okay. so which is one reason another reason I keep finding both of them on, you know, uh, mixed up on other people's um um other people's trees. Well, the other thing about George Kelso, well, about the family, they were all politically active. The men were politically active. The white well, let me John. just make a – there's a comment coming okay. out of the chat, and I just want you to hear this comment, uh, especially as you just g- gave this description of the white George Kelso and the black George Kelso. And the comment they're saying is how amazing that so many people have a difficulty acknowledging their relatives of color. Deep down inside it is known, but their outer level of consciousness makes them resist so much even to defy logic. Yeah, I have. And why on earth would they both be named George Young Kelso unless they were related? So, but um, they, but, you know, getting back into them, um, William, um, William Joint um, was on the Board of Education. And, of course, you know, back in the 1860s, the the good guys were the Republicans, the bad guys were the Democrats. Mm-hmm. John Kelso was a Democrat, and he was actually elected to the state Senate in 1865 and removed by the Reconstruction government. And then George Young Kelso, um, the, the black George Young Kelso, ran for Congress uh, ran for the Senate, in, and he actually won three terms. And his brother William was on the school board, because they, they were all educated. Uh, William was on the school board. John became a teacher, the the black John P. Kelso. He was a school teacher most of his life, and, and many of his kids became school teachers. And they John was um, actually um, chased out of Louisiana after the Colfax massacre when he supported Willie Calhoun, and um, he was. He, they had been fighting. John William and George had been fighting for blacks' rights to vote from 
you know, the end of the Civil War. And uh, George was writing a lot of letters, and he was, um, when he got elected to the Senate, that was one of the things that he concentrated on. And looking at the various newspapers and looking in the congressional records, you know, it was like 99% of the stuff that he was working on was, you know, the fact that the whites were preventing the blacks from voting. And even after the um, Colfax Massacre in 1873, when he was told, you have to leave uh, Louisiana by nightfall or we're going to kill you and your family, um, he came back and continued to fight for black rights, which I think that is extremely brave of him. I don't know if any of his brothers left the state, but I know that George ended up fleeing to Arkansas. Right. Well, why don't you just just give just a little bit of information on the Colfax Massacre so that people can understand what you're talking about. And then also tell us where did you find information about um, the Colfax Colfax, uh, Massacre and the Kelso Connection? So so the Colfax Massacre was, it's like one of the greatest unknown massacres in American history. And it was actually only like republicized in the nineteen uh the nineteen nineties. So the Colfax Massacre happened on Easter Sunday in eighteen seventy three. There are two factions. Um there was like the white the white camellias, which were a precursor of the KKK, and then they mm-hmm. were the, and they were Democrats. And there then there were the Republicans who were the the blacks and they wanted they were trying to vote. So um they had been um, they had been voting, and um, President Grant had a strong presence during the Reconstruction and was trying to um, have the blacks and the whites, you know, sort of come together and and um, and um, um, uh, create a new constitution for Louisiana. As a matter of fact, they had to create a new constitution in order to come back into the Union. And George Young Kelso was part of the con- uh, the congressional the convention that um, wrote the new new um constitution for Louisiana that brought them into the um back into the union. So um they the blacks having the vote had elected democratically elected the people that they wanted. Well the Ku Klux Klan didn't like that because it was giving blacks power. They were electing blacks into the Senate and as mayor and governors and, and you know into political power and they That's wanted right. to gain yeah. the power that they had before the Civil War. So there was an election in 1872 where the the whites, the Ku Klux Klan, tried to repress, repress the black vote. And so what they did essentially was throw away the black votes, and they said, okay, our white candidates are the ones who won the election. And the blacks refused to um, acquiesce and allow them to take over the government. So what ended up happening is the Colfax Massacre happened in Grant Parish, which is named after President Grant, in the courthouse where the blacks were trying to take over the courthouse because they had actually won the election and the whites didn't want them to. So what ended up happening is the white community surrounded the um, courthouse and they ended up um, firing on the blacks and trying to get them to come out. Well, first of all, they said, okay, you know, come out. We're not going to do anything to you. And then when blacks started coming out, they fired on them and killed them. So they went and barricaded it. And they had guns, too. And they were prepared to stand their ground there 
what and they knew what the end could possibly be and they knew that they were outnumbered. And so what ended up happening is the whites set fire to the courthouse and burned the people out. And the ones that came out and fled, they took prisoner and they killed them or they just killed them outright as they came out. And they told the women, you know, the the men who were inside, their women were in there and they told their women to leave because they knew that they were going to, you know, die. That was their Alamo. So the death toll has never really been they are never they're not sure they say anywhere but from 250 to i think like 150 you know various numbers um roll around and they were saying that this is like the biggest massacre in american history until the oklahoma bombing and this is and i didn't even learn about this in school and so there was a trial and the people involved were convicted, and the conviction was overturned. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and this racist Supreme Court person, they overturned it. And it was actually, it's called, I think they they still teach it, and I'm trying to remember what it was called. The um, I know what that is called. I have it United States versus uh, Khrushchev? Right, the United States were right versus Khrushchev which said that the uh, federal government could not come in if there was a murder if there are murders done you know within Louisiana um if the Ku Klux it, it actually it gave the Ku Klux Klan free reign to murder anybody they wanted in in Louisiana without the federal government getting involved because they were saying that is the state's business and it's not the federal's business and that wasn't even overturned until the 1960s, and part of it still stands. And that set back um, black rights um, for until the 1960s and, you know, allowed them to intimidate. And as a matter of fact, after the Colfax massacre, there were something like 2,000 political assassinations of mostly blacks. And the most, I think there were more political assassinations in Louisiana alone than all of the other states put together. And that, that's just shameful. Right. So, and even after that, and um, George continued to be politically active for the Republicans into the early 1880s, and going to the um, Republican conventions. And it's funny because in the newspapers, sometimes he's listed as black, sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's not. The last convention I find him going to was the I think it's the 1882 when mm-hmm. uh, President Hayes was was um, elected. That was the last one that I can find him going to. But he continued to be uh, politically active. And then finally, you know, he retired and moved to New Orleans. And at that point, he just started living as white. You know, I find him in the census as white. And he died in 1901 of heart failure. And his um, headstone just says George Kelso. It has his date of death. It doesn't have his date of birth. And I cannot find a picture of him. He played so much in the political um, history of Louisiana. There should be a picture somewhere of him, and I just can't find one. Right. Well, we'll have to talk to some of the folks in Louisiana to see if they can help you uh, find a picture. Well, we're going to take another quick break and then come back and continue uh, this discussion.
welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. And I want to just continue this discussion with Gwendolyn Olson and also offer those in the chat an opportunity to call in if you have any questions or comments by calling 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Now, you have connected, George. Yes, go ahead. Um, Before you move on, I wanted to ask Gwendolyn a question. Regarding this George Young Kelso that she just finished discussing, who was Mm -hmm. politically active, and that he moved to Alexandria and then lived out as white for the rest of his time. In New Orleans. He moved to New Orleans. I'm sorry, he moved to New Orleans. Right. But he wasn't, I guess, he wasn't that well-known in New Orleans that he could then pass as white? He was well-known in New Orleans. He was actually a contemporary uh, PBS pinchback. They owned a newspaper together. And uh, I think it was Louisiana Weekly. They owned a newspaper there together. And for some reason, you know, on the census, he he listed himself after a period of time as white. And the census taker wrote down white. So and uh, after uh, his, the census taker put down white. Or the census taker put down white. And right. after his death his um his widow and his daughters moved to San Bernardino, California as, you know, as white and they, you know, continue to live as white there. But um another thing I forgot to mention is that George Young Kelso's half brother, John, was a captain in the Confederacy. He was the captain of uh, Moore's Guards, which is a famous Confederacy unit, uh, unit of the Confederate who won a couple of battles in um, during the Civil War, I think in Mississippi or someplace. I didn't research that too closely. But And the other interesting thing is that that John Kelso is the only one in the family that fought on the side of the Confederacy. His siblings... Um, and his siblings' children that remained in Baltimore, they all fought on the side of the Union. John the White, John Kelso is the only one that fought in the Confederacy. And then, you know, of course, his half-brother, the black George John Kelso, you know, be joining the Senate. And then the other thing that, that happened after the Colfax Massacre is that some of the cars, the black cars, turned Democratic. And they started working with the Ku Klux Klan after the... Um, after the massacre, which horrified me. And I just found that out by accident, you know, doing some Googling and looking through some newspaper articles, and all of a sudden Carter Carr pops up as, you know, they call themselves conservative uh, Democrats. And they are saying that they're going to do what the whites tell them to do because they have their best interest at heart. And so Carter Carr and his brother-in-law, Jefferson Kennedy, they end up on the um on the um um school board seats and you know running for office and things and they're collaborating with the Ku Klux Klan and i just never would have thought that i see something like that and you know until i saw it with my own eyes wow well there's a question coming out of the chat and i guess that was yep. a, a surprise but have any of the Kelsos taken DNA tests and found new cousins coming from the other side, white or black? I've actually found some of my white Kelso cousins that once I presented the story, they welcomed me into the family. So this other woman, she's never going to welcome me into the family. She's never even going. She actually isn't a direct descendant. She is a, you know, she's a Kelso by marriage. And, and you know, the Captain Judge, John, because John also became a, a parish judge before his death in 1871, the white John Kelso, and they're 
you know, they're very invested in his his um, reputation as a Confederate captain and a parish judge, and that I think part doesn't um, come with accepting black relatives. But sure. other of his descendants, yes, they have accepted me as being their cousin. And mm-hmm. no, they haven't done any DNA tests. They've just accepted me as their cousins. I, and, and it's Daniel, based, on the, based on your documentation. Based on my documentation. Now, Daniel Graham, my second, my white second great grandfather, his family. I found tons of them through my DNA testing, and they were like, "Oh, yeah, you're my cousin." And the interesting thing about Daniel, to get back to him, although he's not a Kelso, is that. One of the reasons I was embraced by him is that his family is because there is a story where Daniel in the 1850s traveled from Alexandria to Texas to rescue his sister, and he gave his sister $500 in gold and his stallion because she was not doing very well and her husband wasn't taking care of the family, and they used it to buy land that they still live on now. And then after that, he went back to Alexandria to his family, to my you know second great grandmother and her his children, and one of his nieces wrote that up in a letter and sent it back to South Carolina to tell the family about it, and that letter's been passed down, oh, and so wow. that family was looking for us, looking for Daniel's descendants because he's a family hero. So that family, the the Graham family, has embraced you know us. You know, knowing that we're you know black family, they have in, embraced us. And yeah. Now, DNA where are testing, the family members today? Okay, so today, most of Clara's uh, most of Clara's descendants are in Montana, and there are some in Washington State and Oregon State um, as they scattered around the country. But the main bulk of the family is still in Montana, mm-hmm. and then I, me, and my cousins were the only black branch of. Um, Claire, from Clara's descendants, and then you go down to William. William's family. Some of them are now white. Some of them are now black. Um, they there are some that remain in Pineville, and but the bulk of them moved up to Nebraska. And it's funny because the ones in Nebraska are black, and I have no idea how that happened. They, I was told by a cousin that they were homesteading up there, and that's how they moved up there. Oh, and then okay. John P. Kelso. The school teacher, he remained, mm-hmm. his family remains in, in um, Alexandria, Pineville area. I yes. have not been able to contact them or at least get them to return my effort to contact them. I have attempted to contact, you know, his descendants, and I just haven't gotten a response. Maybe one of them will be listening and will respond to me. But um, his family continued to live there, and they continue to live as, as black. Mm-hmm. George, not Georgiana. Hmm? Go ahead. Oh, Georgiana, she died at 20. Um, she never she never married. Um, the youngest one, George Young Kelso, he had two or three daughters. I think he had three daughters and a son. And they moved to San Bernardino. The girls moved to San Bernardino. And the son moved up to Wisconsin, and he married there, lived as white. He married there, but he never had any children. Now, given all of this information that you've gathered, and for yes. those who may find a similar type of of family story, what kind of what recommendations could you give to individuals when you you have clear documentation that the white family and the black family are definitely family; they are related. Um. As in, what, trying to contact them? 
trying to contact them? Uh, what, well, what kind of information would you share with them? Would you attempt to have a meeting? Or would you I, just say we're related and bye? Well, one of them, I actually, the one that I was, that said that, you know, her, her um, she has not related to any colored people. <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere there. So I didn't even attempt to contact her further because she kind of cut me off. But, you know, another cousin I actually, you know, I found, because there are tons of Kelso, Kelso trees because they were a huge family. And so another one, I contacted her, you know, family and said, um, you know, hey, I think in her case I was pointing out that I had what I what I usually do and what I found is that I always have more information than they do because I think that most of them they get back to either um, Captain Judge John Kelso or his father George Young Kelso and don't go any further and I've gotten a lot further than that and mm-hmm. in this case I think this cousin hadn't gotten back for any further than John Kelso and I was able to present her with John's father George with George's father, um, John, and John's father, Richard. You know, I was able to, what I usually do is I contact them, and then I just lay out all the information that I have that they don't have. Mm-hmm. And in her case, she was really happy to have that information, and she accepted me as a cousin. And, you know, some of the other ones I've contacted, and as a matter of fact, I contacted someone I, I believe is uh, George Young Kelso's descendant, and once we got back to the fact that he was black, they just didn't want to have anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. So I, that was not successful. You know, I we talked for a while until we got back to Louisiana, and that he, because I was telling him, you, you know, you should really be uh, proud that he was a black senator during Reconstruction and helped to write up the um, the Louisiana. Um, Constitution, and after he got to the black thing, he just didn't want, he was not, no didn't want to have anything to do. Well, are you planning on taking the information that you've shared with us tonight and and writing a book about it, or where are you going with this? I do want to write a book, and as a matter of fact, I put it on my blog, which is a crappy blog, but it does have all this information on it. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, Isabel's Footsteps at blogspot.com. And it has this and a lot of other information that um, I brought up. And, the uh, you know, the other thing, looking back, I was so disappointed to find that George Young Kelso, that was born in 1795, was such a large slave owner. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, most of the Kelsos, most of the white Kelsos are related to me in Alexandria. I think there is one white another white Kelso family that is not related. But uh, according to Kelso history, all the Kelsos are one family. And, excuse me, they're from Scotland. And then uh, of the black Kelsos, I've run into a few black Kelsos that I think took their name after slavery. You know, they were Kelso slaves that aren't related to me. But by far, most of the Kelsos, the black Kelsos in um, Alexandria are, are related to me. And then um, I, when I traced back to Baltimore, I found out that John and his brother, my fourth great-grandfather John and his brother Thomas, were abolitionists. They founded, they helped find, found Morgan State University in Baltimore. They provided seed money in their will for you know, a, a Christian minister college that became uh, Morgan State University. And Thomas... Um, 
Thomas, who would be my fourth great-grand-uncle, you know, he stood up after the Civil War and he said, I think they should have an equal um, education to all the white children. Um, all the black children should be equally educated. So, And mm-hmm. he put his money where his mouth was. And he actually served on the board of what is now Morgan State um, um, College in Morgan State College University Morgan in Baltimore. Morgan State University in Baltimore. Right, Morgan State University in Baltimore. He was also a founder of the Kelso Home for Children, um, which was torn down last year, um, an orphanage mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And he, um, they had... You know, they had matching mansions on Clover Hill. They were famous for giving money just out of hand to the poor. You know, if they didn't have to ask, they would give money and say, okay, don't wait to ask, we'll give you more money. John funded a battalion during the War of 1812 when Baltimore said, well, we don't have enough money to fund it. And he said, well, I'll give you money. And they said, well, what if we can't repay you? And he said, then it's money well spent. So he, you know, funded money, and he was called, I think, one of the old ones because he was one of the last living people that participated in the um, the uh, War of 1812. He died in 1850. And mm-hmm. his father, I was able to trace back John's father because he actually met with um, John Wellesley during the Great um, Awakening and met him in Clones, Ireland, and he was one of the first ones to convert to Methodism, which called for being an abolitionist. In Methodism, they don't want you to to um, hold slaves. And early on, John did have slaves. Mm-hmm. He would hold slaves briefly, but later on in his life, um, he didn't have slaves, and he had free people of color living in his house working for him. But mm-hmm. I was able to find Richard Kelso, who would have been born in the 1730s in Clones, Ireland, because uh, John, both John and... Thomas talked about him meeting John Wellesley in Clones, you know, in Clones, Ireland. So I was able to trace that back. Right. Well, so, there's a question coming out of the chat, and as you, yes. since you mentioned the uh, war, uh, did you find a pension, the 1812 pension, on your ancestor? Well, John wouldn't have had a pension because he didn't fight. Okay. He just mm-hmm. gave. He was too old. He just gave them money. You just know, gave he gave them, them money. money. I can't find that he fought. He just gave money for mm-hmm. uh, it. He also sent money during the Great Potato Famine. He also sent money back to Ireland to support, you know, to clones, to keep people going. So mm-hmm. he sent lots of food. And, you know, there were um, um, – I found articles in the paper where, you know, the um, Irish were thanking him for his generosity, you know, and sending them food during this time of Great Famine. So, right. you know, he sent his money there. They spent they, – it sounds like he, they spent their money freely, and they gave – you know, there, he in his will he gave a lot of his money to charitable organizations. Uh, both well, I tell you time. what, we're going to have to really pay attention and look at Isabel's footsteps and look at all of what you have written about the your research on the Kelso Carr family. I mean, it is absolutely yeah. fascinating. And I just want to know, do you have any parting words to share with anyone who would even consider going on a research journey that you have just described to us? Oh, I've been on the search engines. I've gone through (laughs) every search engine that I could find, putting in every combination of their names, Ancestry.com, of course. FamilySearch.com brought up things that it didn't. Afrogenius has helped me. I've gone through GenBank.com, uh, the newspaper organization, although with George Young Kelso. 
it brings up like oh hundreds of papers having to do with his politics and it's hard to go in and get his personal life out of there fold 3 i was able to find the um the war commission um papers i found him in that i read the colfax massacre by leanne keith which meant, which actually mentions george young kelso in the uh book and that gave me the information. I was just horrified about the Colfax massacre and the fact that I hadn't learned about that in high school. Um, I, when I figured out that he was a legislator, I bought Black Legislators in uh, Louisiana during Reconstruction by Charles Vincent, and I read through that, and I had that. Uh, of course, you know the Louisiana death records, the birth certificates, and the marriage certificates. And I was able to get John and George Kelso's um, will from Maryland through random acts of kindness um, before they folded. And if I'd known they were going to fold, I would have asked for so much more. So, mm-hmm. And so now what's left is I have to make a trip to Maryland. I have to make a trip to Louisiana, you know, to do some other digging at the, at the archives there and look for uh, more information. But the information is out there. You just have to be creative as how to get it. And the other thing I did is when I found somebody who looks like they're a relative on the tree, I contact them. I do a friendly, hi, how are you? I don't say I'm black until I talk to them for a while. I usually kind of leave that out until I say, yeah, you know, I'm descended from, you know, some of those black uh, descendants. And then I start talking to them and share information and share information uh, with them. And like I said, I'm free with my information. I usually share what information I have with them. And, you know, out of curiosity, they usually, you know, contact me back and um, and I get to know them that way. And, you know, some of my Kelso cousins are very dear to me now. Well, that is wonderful. And I tell you, you have done a really comprehensive a uh, job of researching the Clark uh, Kelso family by looking through all the different multiple sources. You didn't stop with one. And basically that's kind of the word that everyone needs to yes. hear when they start Never searching for their ancestors, to just keep looking and looking. I mean, to to come up with five different George Kel- Young Kelsos is unbelievable to, to make sense out of all the different connections. So thank you so it. much. You have shared with us one very, very interesting uh, family story, and Thanks. and I want to just thank you so much for sharing that. Well, folks, let me tell you about next week. We're going to have Dr. Deborah Abbott, and she's going to come on board to discuss cluster genealogy may hold the clue. And it sounds like I think you did a little cluster genealogy Uh <laughs> To, to help put all of these players together, if you will. Well, I'd like to just say good night and thank you so much, Gwen. And remember, everybody, your ancestors left footprints. You certainly heard about those footprints tonight with Gwen, and she just connected them because they left information everywhere. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. So let's keep this conversation going on Facebook, 
Take it wherever you want to go. Go to the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com. I think there are a lot of lessons in this story tonight. And also continue talking on Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. So I want to thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and also thank you, co-host Natani Elaine King. Thank you so much. Excuse me, Natani Lane Kemp. Thank you for joining me tonight. And I want everyone to remember these shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they're on iTunes. So go back, listen, and and tell me what you've learned from this story tonight. So good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night, everyone. Good night, Gwen. Good night, Natan. Good night. Good night, Bye. Bye-bye.